Hi there, if we haven't met before, my name is Andy Smits, and I've got the privilege of leading you in the scriptures this morning. Uh, as we go to the scriptures, I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, have you ever heard the term NPC, or non-playable character? Uh, it refers to a, to a character in a video game uh, that isn't playable or controllable by the user, but instead they're controlled by a programming script. They're kind of a minor character in the background. The, the term's been around for decades, but has kind of become a little bit more popular in the last number of years, uh, thanks to a movie that came out uh, starring Ryan Reynolds called Free Guy. Uh, and, and in the movie, uh, an NPC, a non-playable character, actually becomes self-aware and breaks free of his programming and, and leads a rebellion of other NPCs, other non-playable characters against the programmers who made this world. Uh, it's a funny movie, but it's got kind of this sticky, kind of relevant message about not uh, underestimating the people that maybe we assume to be background players in the main plot. It's quirky, and it's kind of stuck with me, but this central, because of this central idea, this idea that, you know, if I'm honest with myself... I tend to put people in the fringes of the story, and I tend to put myself in the middle of the story. I tend to assume that the story is really all about me, and everybody else is kind of a, a minor character, a bit character, an NPC, a non-playable character. Uh, not even just that I relegate them to a secondary role, but I, I rarely give much thought to what other people are actually experiencing on a daily basis, the other people that I interact with. Sure, I make eye contact when I'm walking, when I'm going through the Provigo, uh, when I'm going through the Provigo line with the person who's checking out my groceries, but I'm not really thinking much about her or him. They're, they're a minor character in my story. The other drivers on the road around me, uh, they're minor characters. They, they're not that important to me, right? The people maybe that I interact with on uh, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, ah, they're NPCs. They're, they're kind of minor characters in, in the major story that's really all about me. The danger, of course, of going through life surrounded by non-playable characters is that it's easy to minimize their feelings. It's easy to minimize maybe even their humanity or their experiences. It's easy to begin to see them as, as problems to solve or maybe obstacles, but, but not necessarily as people to love, people who are worthy of love. Maybe worse than this, it can be tempting to make others into to obstacles or, or even enemies. It's tempting to put the focus on me, my needs, my feelings, my experiences, but, but if I'm not careful, I might wind up using people as a means to my own ends, noble though I might believe those ends to be. The story we're going to look at today of, of Abraham and Sarah's sojourn into, a ter into the territory of Abimelech, I think this is maybe an appropriate frame for us to kind of have in our mind as we read this story. How is Abraham tempted to view the other people in the story today? So as we go to the scriptures, let's just pause and pray. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to be a God who speaks and we've come to you again this morning because we want to hear your voice and we want to meet with you. So, Father, would you open our ears to hear your word this morning? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's open up to Genesis chapter 20. It begins like this. Now, Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, She's my sister. Then Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. So 
just to pause here, Abraham once again finds himself in the position of being fearful when he's faced with a, with a leader in another country in which he's settling. And just like the, the story earlier that kind of maybe sounds familiar to this, when Abraham goes to Egypt, uh, you know, in the same way as when he was in Egypt, Abraham decides to, to kind of sell Sarah down the river so that he can protect himself. And we just need to pause and once again reflect on the fact that fear does not bring out the best in Abraham and, and probably not the best in us as, as well. Our story continues. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you're as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say he's my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I've kept you from sinning against me. That's why I didn't let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. And again, I think it's just important to pause at this point and say, it's good for us to see that it's God who intervenes on behalf of Sarah, right? The the story, kind of the, the hinge point of that story was, but God intervenes. And in just like in Genesis 12, we've got God intervening to protect Sarah. Both times, both stories, Abraham demonstrates a lack of care for Sarah, but God actually intervenes to protect her. The story continues. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, and when he had told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called to Abraham, called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? And Abraham replied, I said to myself, surely there's no fear of God in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me everywhere you go. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. So if we pause again, Abimelech acts on God's warnings. He gathers his officials and he goes straight to Abraham. And did you notice something in the exchange? When asked why he deceived Abimelech, Abraham shifts the blame to Abimelech and his people. Surely there's no fear of God in this place, he says. But the story continues. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you'd like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. Can we just pause here? Smart move, Abimelech. I like this. Do you see what he did? He didn't say Abraham to your wife, or to, or sorry, to Sarah, Sarah to your husband. He says, no, I'm giving your brother Little, little, little slight from, uh, from Abimelech. The story continues. He says, this is to cover the offense against you and before all who are with you, you are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female slaves so they could have children again for the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. 
Well, that's the end of our story or as far as we're going to go for today. But I want to take a couple minutes and just walk through a couple things that took place in this story, a couple things for us to consider. You know, we've spent the last number of weeks on the story of Abraham, so it's easy to assume that this story is once again a story about Abraham. In fact, you could argue that that's what Abraham assumes as well, right? He puts himself right in the middle of the story. He assumes this is something about him. Abraham believes the story is really just about him, and how does that lead him to act? Well, in self-preserving, kind of self-centered ways. He, he minimizes the value of other people. And, and what happens to the others? Well, he quickly demotes Sarah to a minor character, to a tool to be used, and Abimelech becomes an enemy, right? The, the, the people in the story become just a small part of what's a, the, the larger story of, of Abraham and what's important to him. But, but who is the story really about? I mean, think about this for a minute. There's a compelling story about each of these characters, right? It's a compelling story about how Abraham sins out of fear, but how God is faithful to him in the midst of this to bring him out of that. It's a compelling story about a woman named Sarah in a dysfunctional marriage. Did you catch that earlier? Abraham told her right at the beginning of the marriage, everywhere we go, tell people that you're my sister. He puts her in danger everywhere she goes. So it's a compelling story about a woman named Sarah in a dysfunctional marriage who experiences God's care and protection and at the end of the story has her honor restored. It's a compelling story about how God intervened in the life of a foreign king and went on to bless him through his relationship with God's covenant family. So, so there's multiple stories taking place in this. It's not just about Abraham. Ultimately, this is a story about what God is doing. The God who's at work in the lives of all of these people as he works out his plan to bring redemption and hope to the world. And, and that's maybe the second thing I want to point out. A- Abraham places himself at the center of the story, and in so doing, he forgets the plot of the story. What's the plot of the story? It's that God is seeking to bless the world, beginning with one family. Did you catch that? Abraham knows that God is committed to blessing him, Abraham, but he loses sight on the implication of that for anybody else. Sarah? Well, I mean, hopefully God keeps her safe in that foreign king's harem. Abimelech? That guy, I don't really owe him anything. Not even the truth. But, but what does God actually say to Abraham about what God's plan is? Genesis 12, he says, I will make you into a great nation. Sounds good for Abraham. I will bless you. Again, great for Abraham. I'll make your name great. Yeah, good things for Abraham. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. That's not about Abraham. That's about other people. I'll curse those who curse you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. What's the plot? What's the story? It's the thing that God is doing through Abraham. It's not just that Abraham is meant to be blessed so that Abraham has a nice life. Is that God is trying to bless the nations through Abraham, and Abraham loses sight of that story. Though he's meant to be a blessing, Abraham lives like this outlaw bandit who trusts nobody, touches nobody. He's a, he's a wealthy nomad, loyal to no one, and convinced that everybody else is a threat to his safety. And therefore, the people that he encounters are either problems to be solved or tools to be used. And I think that's what the author wants us to see in the story. Why is he telling us another story about Abraham uh, giving up on Sarah, abandoning Sarah? It's so that we would see the failure of Abraham and reflect on our own temptation to do the same things that he did. Now, true story. I've never abandoned Lonnie anywhere before, as far as I can remember. Uh, But I have done exactly what Abraham did, right? I've assumed that other people around me 
are NPCs. They're non-playable characters. They're minor characters in a story that's really all about me. I've let fear and self-centeredness drive me to see people as less important than myself. To see people as obstacles that are in the way of my, my progress, my happiness, or my freedom. And here's the key thought. When we start to see those around us as problems to solve rather than people to love, we've lost sight of God's story. Fear causes us to begin to see the people around us as problems to solve rather than people to love. (laughs) This was really clear to me in a story I read recently. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with Father Greg Boyle, uh, the founder of uh, of Homeboy Industries. If if you're not familiar with Homeboy Industries, you should look this up. This is a phenomenal ministry in, in, in the Los Angeles area. But it began like this. Father Greg Boyle was a young Catholic priest sent to the Dolores Mission in, the, in a slum of Los Angeles, known for its gang activity. Boyle Heights, the place that he was sent to, had the highest rate of gang activity in Los Angeles, which was the city with the highest rate of, of gang activity in North America. And the church that Father Greg had assumed was kind of placed in the center of the community between two major low-income housing projects that housed rival gangs. When Father Greg began reaching out to the gang members in the community and seeking to serve them, he suddenly found his church was filled with gang members and homeless people from the community who were grateful recipients of his love. He tells the story of of a longtime church member returning to the neighborhood one day after being away and observing the scene at the church. And this is what he says. He says, he takes in the scene all around him. Gang members are gathered by the bell tower. Homeless men and women are being fed in great numbers in the parking lot. Folks are arriving for Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous meetings and ESL classes. It's a who's who of everybody who is nobody. Gang member, drug addict, homeless, undocumented. This man sees it all, shakes his head, determined and disgusted, as if to say to himself, tisk tisk. Then he turns to Father Greg and says, you know, this used to be a church. And Greg responds, you know, most people around here think it's finally a church. When we start to see people around us as problems to solve rather than people to love, we've lost sight of God's story. We've lost sight of the way that God's called us to be in the world. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. Because the story isn't just about Abraham. I mentioned earlier that it's worth noticing that that Abraham describes Abimelech as someone who he assumes does not fear God. And yet that's exactly what happens as a result of God's intervention. that, That Abimelech shows that he actually fears him. And more than actually fearing God, if you scan forward a chapter further... You'll see another scene where Abimelech actually wants to enter into a covenant with Abraham. And why does he want to make a covenant with Abraham? Well, he says this. He says, Abraham, God is with you in everything that you do. So I want to align myself with you and with your God. It sounds like Abimelech has actually gotten a sense of who God is. And it's in God's name that he actually wants to swear an oath with Abraham. Now, now here's what I think we need to see in this story, fear can tempt us to place ourselves at the center of God's story, reducing everybody else to to enemies and minor characters. But God's overflowing love for all people pushes past those boundaries and causes his blessings to abound to everybody. Abraham may have acted like the blessing of God started and ended with him, but God's call on his life was for him to be a blessing everywhere he would go. And when Abraham lived like a blessing... Everyone around him took notice and praised God. 
Abraham was meant to be a blessing. And the consistent promise of God is that he will bless the world through his covenant people, and that includes you and me. The church has been built on Christians who have been willing to lay their lives down in sacrifice for others. And why is that? Because that's what Jesus did, and that's the pattern that he's left for us. Self-sacrificing love. You know, going back to that story of Father Greg from from the Dolores Mission, he he tells a story about the cost of ministering to the people in his community. He says, you know, one Sunday morning as people were coming into church, there was this unmistakable odor, this smell in the church because of all the homeless people who had been sleeping there. And and rather than ignoring it or trying to sidestep, he decides, I'm going to actually ask the question of the congregation. So he begins his sermon with this question, what does the church smell like? People are mortified. Nobody wants to admit it. Uh, eye contact, kind of, everybody, every eye goes down. Nobody wants to look at them. Women are searching inside of their purses for who knows what. They're just trying to avoid the, the, the question. Come on now, he throws back at them. What's the church smell like? And finally, Don Raphael yells out, it smells like feet. Uh, he was the kind of person who never really cared what people thought. Uh, excellent, Father Greg says, but why does it smell like feet? Because many homeless men slept here last night, asks a woman. Well, why do we let that happen? And another response and says, it's what we're committed to do. Well, why in the world would we commit to doing that? Because it's what Jesus would do. Well then, says Father Greg, what does the church smell like now? And a man stands to his feet and bellows. It smells like commitment. It smells like commitment. It smells like committed love. It smells like blessing. So what does that mean for us here in Montreal today? Well, it means simply this. Because God's heart is to bless, we should see ourselves as rivers that overflow with his love in every place that he calls us to be, especially those places and those people that we're tempted to write off. We're experiencing a unique moment in Canada right now where fear is tempting us to draw lines around those who are for us and those who we perceive to be against us. And this is one of the major challenges of humanity, our tendency to write people into roles that inevitably reduce them to something simpler but less real. We write people into the role of enemy and then we have no choice but to treat them as such. We write people into the role of minor characters and then we feel less badly about treating them or using them to fight our battles. Surely this is some of what's happening in our cultural moment, that the complex realities of public health and pandemic are being rewritten into simpler tropes about all good or all bad politicians, about all good or all bad truckers or leaders or whoever it would be. But, but we can't afford to go there as followers of Jesus because we just read a story where the hero gets it wrong. The enemy turns out to be a friend and God protects the honor of a woman without the power to protect herself. I read something from Tim Keller this week where he says, if sin is inside all of us, then we can't just break the world into heroes and villains. If sin is inside all of us, then we can't just break the world into heroes and villains. Instead, Jesus tells us and shows us that perfect love casts out fear and calls us to live the kind of lives of love in the midst of these confusing and complicated times. That's what we see in Jesus, right? In the midst of violence and anger, Jesus shows love that disarms. 
In response to the the violence of sin and rebellion, Jesus humbly goes to the cross, choosing the path of sacrifice that ultimately overcomes and becomes a path of life for us. So where do you need the love of Jesus to break down the fear that's tempting you to miscast others into the roles of, of enemy or less than? On the other hand, what might it look like to actually begin to see yourself as, as called to be a blessing to those around you? What might change if you assumed a posture of blessing in all the places that God has called you to be? How would that change your relationships with your neighbors? If you decided that you've been placed in your neighborhood, you've been placed in the relationships that you're in to be a blessing to those people. How would it change your workplace relationships if you decided that in an environment where people are maybe tempted to do the minimum or to look out for themselves, that you want to be known as somebody who looks out for others, somebody who seeks to be a blessing? And what about our community relationships? What would it take for Westview to be seen by our community as a church that has an agenda to be an unrestricted blessing to the people around us. We live in a world of sound bites, of simple conclusions, narratives that inevitably lead us to fear and diminish the people around us by ascribing names to them, right? We read the newspaper and we hear people described as woke or asleep, apathetic, liberal, conservative, pro-vax, anti-vax, all these words that inevitably diminish people. But Jesus invites us to step into a way of being in the world that recognizes the inherent value and dignity of each person, that calls us to resist simple labels and judgments, and instead calls us to sacrificial love. The way of Jesus ultimately calls us to be a blessing. So how is God inviting you today to be a blessing? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of people who both get it right and get it wrong, and for the ultimate example of Jesus who gets it all right. We pray again today, would you fill our hearts with your love and that it would overflow and bless all the spaces and places you call us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.